Good night, everyone in the Cayman Islands. I'm your co-host, Kevin Wattler, and you are watching the CMR COVID Spotlight Series. And again, we're doing our very best to try to bring you factual information all about different topics on COVID. We have an exciting show lined up for you tonight where we're going to be talking to some experts who are know just about everything about the available vaccines out there, as well as some of those individuals who are involved in clinical research. Now, before we get into introducing our guests and we start having people joining our broadcast tonight, please go ahead and share that we are live with all your friends. Let them know what's happening to make sure that they are aware that we're doing this show because this is very important information, as well as we're going to take a look at now some of the latest data that was posted by Public Health. So, uh, Sandra, go ahead and roll that video. Today, Thursday, September 30, 2021, there have been 106,882 total doses of COVID-19 vaccine administered in the Cayman Islands. This comprises 55,174 first doses, 51,645 second doses, and 63 boosters. Coverage for the population estimated at 71,106 is now 78% for the first dose and 73% for two doses. Boosters are being administered to persons who are most vulnerable due to serious medical conditions, such as being transplant recipients, dialysis patients, persons currently undergoing chemotherapy, and persons living with HIV or AIDS. With the anticipated arrival of a shipment of vaccine this weekend, we expect to expand the booster delivery from mid-October. This, of course, is dependent on the vaccine arriving in good condition, and it will be posted with the schedule on the HSA and government websites and various social media channels. The vaccination program will be moving to the Lions Center next week and will follow the delivery schedule posted. Since yesterday morning, there have been 1,062 PCR tests conducted. Of these, there were seven positives. Two positives are travelers on exit from quarantine who have been retained in quarantine until they're negative. Three positives are related to the schools. Prospect Primary has one additional positive child from the same year six class as the previous screenings. Georgetown Primary has one parent of a previous case and one additional child tested at exit from quarantine. Both have been retained in quarantine. All the children who have tested positive are doing well and the inpatient continues to improve. Public health continues to trace, identify and test contacts and implement quarantine and isolation measures as indicated by their findings. We ask that you continue to cooperate with and support the health system as we work together to protect the population of our beloved home. 
Well, that was the latest update from Public Health. And now we're going to introduce a wonderful guest for tonight. First up would be Dr. Kevin Sneed. And Dr. Sneed, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Tell us a little bit of what you do for a living. Uh, well, uh, good evening, Kevin. Thank you very much for having me. Um, again, my name is uh, Kevin Sneed. I'm my daytime job, I am at the University of South Florida here in Tampa, Florida. I am the Dean of the Tanasia College of Pharmacy. And I also hold the title of Senior Associate uh, Vice President. Uh, I also remain clinically active. And most recently, uh, I was a co-investigator on a clinical trial here with the company Novavax. Uh, so uh, I, I can pause there, but um, I'm very happy to be here with all of you tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Sneed. And we also have Dr. Ray De La Morena. And I'm sorry, Dr. Um, Ray, I know you said I could call you Dr. Ray because I am not good with saying names that are not very common for me. So Dr. Ray, time for you to introduce yourself to everyone. Hi, good evening. Thank you for having me here. It's my pleasure being here with you guys. Uh, my name is Ray. Um, I am a doctor from Cuba. I'm working here at Tampa General Hospital. Technically, I am the lead senior clinical research coordinator. Um, my main role here is support. Uh, it is supporting my principal investigators and investigators du uh, during any clinical trial since the beginning to the end and see patients to support the clinical trial. Thank you, Dr. Ray. And also, we have another tough name for me, uh, Dr. Vijay Subramanian. Okay, I'm not saying your last name because I am so not good at these names. Dr. Vijay. Hi, Kevin. Uh, thanks for having us. Uh, so I'm Vijay Subramanian. Uh, I'm uh, one of the transplant surgeons at Tampa General Hospital and also hold the title of assistant professor at the University of South Florida in the Department of Surgery. Um, I'm uh, primarily interested in knowing how uh, anti-rejection or immune suppression medicine affects uh, patients, and uh, I'm actually the local lead investigator for uh, the Moderna trial on, um, on uh, transplant recipients. All right, thank you. And someone I know very well, worked with her at the Florida Department of Health and Hillsborough. She's an epidemiologist, Nazneen Pal. She joins us now. And Nazneen, time for you to introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Um, yes, yeah, so I am an epidemiologist with the Florida Department of Health, and along with that, a clinical research coordinator with Tampa General Hospital. Um, worked many years in clinical research, health outcomes research, and as a public health practitioner. Perfect. Well, thank you all for taking the time to be able to come on the show. And um, of course, you guys are all focused right now on, on your jobs, more or less in, in the United States. But you guys are taking this time to, to help me spread accurate information to a Cayman Islands audience. And I really, really appreciate you all for, for doing that. And I'm, I know a lot of people there are also really appreciative. So thank you all for joining us tonight. So we have a lot of questions to try to get into. And as um, people might have their own questions, they could put it in the chat on Facebook or on YouTube and let us know. Um, Sandra is in the background. She is uh, keeping an eye out on that and, and she will jump in as needed as, as questions pop up. But you know, there's been talk 
on the island about different vaccines that are not available in the Cayman Islands. We know Pfizer is, is the main one. We got a little bit of AstraZeneca. Um, but I know one of them that's been um, highlighted a bit is Sinopharm. And so, Dr. Sneed, I'm going to ask you to, to kind of talk about some of the cons and pros to, to Sinopharm, um, and then we'll go through the other vaccines as well. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, you know, Sinopharm is actually, a, it's a much different vaccine than what we have here in the United States. Um, it's actually a, what we call an inactivated virus. So uh, they, they've taken the SARS-CoV-2 virus or the, the virus that causes COVID-19 and they've, uh, they've uh, in inactivated it so that when they put it into the vaccine, uh, they inject it so that your body gets exposed to it, but it cannot cause any infection in you. And, but you do get exposed to the protein from the vaccine. And therefore, if you come into contact with the actual virus after you've been uh, injected with the Sinopharm, your body has already had an opportunity to build up a large antibody army and help that will help protect you should you come into contact with it. Now, overall, uh, most of the clinical trials have been very positive with this particular vaccine. Uh, it has been shown to be anywhere from 75 to 79% effective. And overall, it's, it's very similar to what we have here in the United States. And it is injected anywhere from three to four weeks apart. You get your first vaccine, and then about a four-week period later, you get your second vaccine. And then somewhere anywhere from 10 to 14 days after that is when you really should have your full amount of protection from that particular vaccine. So... Um, uh, it, it, again, it's, an, it's what we call an inactivated virus. It's not a messenger RNA, or it's not a, an adenovector virus like um, the Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca. Uh, but so far, all of my reading prior to today, long enough and watching it in development, has shown to be uh, very effective. Now, when it comes to some of the effectiveness of vaccines, you said Sinopharm is pretty effective. Now, is how does that really compare with an mRNA type of technology, is it as effective or not as effective? Well, without actually doing a clinical trial, and that's where uh, Nazneen and I used to, uh, we used to work together in clinical research many, many years ago. I'm really happy to see her. But without doing what we call a head-to-head -head trial, doing them uh, at the very same time where you're comparing two vaccines with each other at the very same time, it's very difficult to try to compare one versus another. And so uh, I want to be very careful and cautious about comparing it to another one. Uh, but what I, what I can say that everything that we've noticed and everything that, I, that we currently know about it is that it does appear to be safe and effective. And um, uh, whereas the other vaccines that we have here in the United States, uh, I would say probably the, the biggest advantage would be the ability to manufacture them in a, in a very, uh, a, a very uh, quicker fashion probably than you can do with the inactivated uh, vaccines. Okay. And and so as we take a look at some of the others, Novavax, um, I know some of the clinical trials going on at Tampa General Hospital, University of South Florida, um, there, there's some studies on that. Who wants to share a little bit about those trials and some of the studies regarding that vaccine? Is it Nazneen or? Yeah, hi, I'm happy to share some information. So there are several vaccine trials that are going on. Um, one of them happens to be 
Novavax. Um, it's currently a two-year trial, and we're in about nine month nine of that trial. Uh, currently, we have about 140 participants with uh, Tampa General, and then another number from the University of South Florida side. Um, currently, we are looking for just to see how our participants are doing, you know, um, and monitoring them for any type of side effects or if they're getting ill, if they do come down with a cough or cold or anything COVID related, then we bring them in and have them seen for an acute illness visit. Um, the vaccine is not EUA approved yet. They have, the sponsor has applied for EUA approval um, in the fourth quarter. So, and they, in addition to that, they will also be providing a booster to those participants. Okay, so let's just kind of talk about, um, you know, the approval process. What goes into vaccine approvals? Um, I know that's what you guys are, are doing to, to figure out what other vaccine options might become available and uh, who it should be given to, just to know a little bit more about that. So let, let's talk, let's pretty much from beginning, walk us through from beginning to it gets EUA, or ultimately full FDA approval. Um, let's go through that process. I guess uh, I can jump in and try and answer that. So in order for the FDA to approve a trial, it has to, or, or any particular drug, for example, or an investigation uh, drug, uh, it has to go through a series of uh, trials. So there are different phases of every clinical trial of a drug, where phase one is sort of limited to just a few individuals just for monitoring major safety effects uh, of the drug. Um, and then they move to phase two of the trial where um, it's uh, usually about a hundred or so people uh, and can last a few months, where again, they're looking at uh, just broad efficacy, whether the drug is intended to achieve what it was designed to do and also looking at any important side effects and then uh, following that is when the real sort of phase three trial goes in where you evaluate close to like anywhere between two to 3,000 people uh, where you uh, again look to make sure that the, uh, that the vaccine or the drug is very effective in doing what it was supposed to do uh, in either protecting patients or developing antibodies or, you know, or protecting against a major disease. And, and then usually when you've completed about these first three phases uh, or when you've completed even the first two phases, uh, a company that's making the drug or the vaccine can apply to the FDA uh, and discuss what they are uh, doing in terms of their uh, trial. And it's important to note that a lot of these trials to make the uh, safety requirement, they're often what we call placebo-controlled trial where you have two arms of pay of patients where one is getting the investigational drug and the other is getting uh, nothing basically or uh, or we in medical terms sometimes it's just a, an injection of uh, saline where uh, and then you compare to make sure that it's actually the drug that's causing the effect or not so when you have the data and efficacy data and safety data from all these uh, three phases usually uh, that's when the company would go to the FDA, submit all the data that they have, 
and ask for approval uh, for a particular drug. And then at that point, the FDA can choose to do one of two things. So in the setting of COVID, where it was felt that the clinical need was so uh, important uh, that uh, the FDA could not uh, complete or certain vaccine trials could not do the complete follow-up, which usually requires one or two years of follow-up. Um, they uh, they may approve a vaccine or a drug for something called emergency use only, or that's the term that we use, say, EUA. Um, now, uh, all that means is that, you know, it has made a basic benchmark to make sure that it's safe, efficacious, and uh, in our best interest and the FDA's best interest that they think that it's going to be effective and important for releasing out to the public. Uh, in at the same time, the onus is on the FDA as well as the manufacturers of the company to continue to make sure uh, that uh, there are no serious adverse events or not. Um, so, for example, in the setting of COVID, uh, initially a lot of uh, three uh, in the U.S. Uh, three vaccines were approved under EUA, uh, the Johnson & Johnson, the Moderna vaccine, as well as the Pfizer vaccine. And then in between, there were some side effects reported related to blood clots. So the FDA paused their EUA for J&J and issued an advisory that they need to do further evaluation. Uh, so it had stopped for a few days and the FDA were able to review the data and felt that uh, it was still safe to use and really reopened the EUA. Now, when you reached sufficient level of follow-up and met all the benchmarks, that's when the FDA can then proceed to go and give full approval for a drug or a vaccine. Uh, and that's what currently the Pfizer vaccine has gotten full FDA approval in the U.S. Uh, for uh, 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 and uh, the other two drugs are still under EUA while they complete the necessary follow-up and requirements that the FDA needs uh, in order to get full approval of a drug. And I believe the FDA um, has a emergency use authorization for Pfizer for 12 and 15 still. Why is that um, age group not yet fully approved by the FDA? Um, explain that a bit. So I think uh, it's got to do again with, like I said, about how the study, uh, initial studies are designed so or the clinical trials are designed in order to get the data. So initially, the Pfizer uh, company focused their efforts on obtaining uh, clinical data on, uh, uh, on people 16 years and above. And, uh, uh, and they were able to collect all that information and the uh, relevant data and submit that to the FDA to prove that it's still efficacious and the side effects are minimal and acceptable side effects. So that's why the uh, FDA granted full approval for 16 and above, whereas Pfizer had not fully completed uh, all the requirements, uh, including the follow-ups for the age groups of uh, 12 to 15. Uh, but they still felt that it was still quite efficacious. Um, so that's why the EUA still is present. But for the ages 12 to 15, um, the Pfizer vaccine is under EUA approval and not full FDA approval. And for less than 12 years, currently none of the vaccines are, uh, are approved because uh, I think the next step is to focus a lot on the uh, on, on younger patients, basically. So... It all depends on uh, how the initial studies were designed 
and uh, and what's kind of safety and efficacy data that the companies and the FDA are able to gather through uh, through these studies. So let's talk about um, I guess the patient experience or the, the I guess the volunteer experience or not really a volunteer but the person going through the trial. Um, how often do they have to come for appointments? How often are they checked? Um, and how did he, how did he even get enrolled? So I can take that one. So um, there's several several different cl clinical trials that are going on all over the country, um, and the best resource database that we have is clinical clinicaltrials.gov. There you can search up several different trials that are going on and see if there would be something that you would or a family member would potentially qualify for. Um, after that, you find the trial, you have to see there's a certain enrollment criteria, and that is called a screening process. We go through a screening with the patients to see if they do, in fact, qualify for that study. Once they qualify, if and when they do, then they, we move on to the next step. So I'm, I'm just giving you a very, very brief overview. It's a little bit more detailed um, than that. But once you qualify, then you move on to the next step. The next step would be um, the patient is presented with an informed consent. An informed consent outlines all the details of the study, um, any risks or benefits of the study, and just really gives a very clear um, understanding and want to make sure that, you know, the, the drug company, the institution, is, it's all transparent on that informed consent. Um, and then after that, I will let... Um, Dr. Ray, go through the rest of that process. Dr. Ray, you have to unmute your mic. You were having some feedback, so we had to mute you. Um, so there you go. Are you okay now? Okay, sorry for that. So basically, thank you, Nathine. So that is true. So basically, we have to follow some processes, and we have to do a step-by-step -step to avoid uh, any, you know, wrong enrollment with any patient. So... Basically, it is when we receive the study and I'm going to meet as a coordinator with my investigator, principal investigator, and I'm going to and we're going to discuss about which patient is the good candidate for the study. So during that process, we call that process pre-screening just to make sure that we have to review our patients database and make sure that those patients meet criteria. And then when those patients, they are coming to their regular doctor appointment we're going to talk to them about one potential study that where they can be a potential patient. And then we're going to present in details what is the study about, and we are going to provide a hard copy of that informed consent. So the doctor or myself, we can talk to the patient sometimes with a family member too, and we can explain page by page about you know that consent, and they can clarify any question. Uh, we have to provide time to them to read the, that document because that is very, very important. And then they have to go home or sometimes they can go home, read it. Some of them they want to discuss with their family doctors. So they have that freedom to do that. So most of the time they are signing the following day or the next week or the next appointment. So when they sign consent, we that is a process that we call screening. So the screening basically has to register that patient in our database from the sponsor and then the sponsor is going to provide a number for those patients. So basically in research, we don't use patient names. So every patient is going to receive a number. 
because we have to keep their information very, very confidential. So they are going to do a lot of things during the screening process. Basically, we have to check after signing consent, we have to check medical history, we have to check inclusion, exclusion criteria. So they have to complete a lot of things, honestly. And then my, the, the, our doctors, they have to make sure that those patients qualify. Let's see, we have to review all the lab reports. We have to review the ECG report. So we have to check everything before saying, okay, this is a good candidate to uh, receive the medication if that is a clinical trial, you know. And then after that, we are going to contact the patient and we are going to say, yes, you are a good candidate for this study. You meet all the criteria. And then we are going to start giving you medication the next time when you come here. So at that time, when the patient receives the medication by first time, we call randomization. So randomization means uh, when the patient receives medication by first time. So depending on the study, some studies, they have double blind, they have different uh, name, uh, depending on the study. If it is single blind, it means that only uh, we know uh, which medication the patient is taking, the patient doesn't know. If the patient is doing a double blind study, means that uh, we don't know which medication they are taking, basically if, if it is placebo or if it is uh, active medication, or if it is open label, so everybody knows. So that thing is a very long process. It depends on the study. Every study is different. You can have a study you know, for only one year, two years, three years, five, depends on the study. And we have to follow those patients, you know, visit by visit. We have to check a lot of safety uh, tests to make sure that the patient is, is fine, that we don't have any liver damage, we don't have any kidney damage, and the patient is fine. So, and then the last phase is the follow-up. The last day when the patient takes the medication by last time, we have to do a lot of tests to make sure that the patient is fine and safe. And we have to follow up those patients 30 days or 60 or 90, depending on the protocol. And then without taking medication to make sure that the patient is fine after they finish the study. And that is the full process, you know, from day one to the last day when we can say, okay, this patient is completed. So when it comes to, um, you know, the research, the data coming in before it gets the approval process, I mean, how many, uh, I know you probably don't know, know the number exactly, but how many different groups, you know, is it many, many different groups are submitting this data? Is that what FDA, what, what does the FDA look at really is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, you know, I, I can chime in there. Um, basically, every bit of data collected on any clinical trial is going to be turned into the FDA at one, at one point in time, uh, especially around the COVID-19 trials. Um, and I'm going to try and remember all the numbers from the top of my head, Kevin. So if I get this right, you, I want you to be a little bit impressed with it. Okay. You know, um, so, you know with, the, with the Moderna trial, uh, there were about 30,000 people that were uh, involved in the Moderna trial overall that was submitted to the FDA for review. The Pfizer study had about 44,000 people. Johnson & Johnson, uh, many people are not aware. They actually had two clinical trials that were kind of running almost at the same time. Uh, or right behind each other, they had about thirty thousand, and, uh, and and Sinopharm actually had forty thousand people in their trials. So uh, we're talking a large number of people that went through clinical trials for each one of the uh, the current COVID nineteen vaccines. Um, even though Sinopharm is not here in the United States, but they, anyone that is enrolled in the trial, uh, they're going to follow anyone that was enrolled, and they're going to even follow anyone that that uh, may have 
decided not to complete the study. They want to know why they did not complete the study, uh, or 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 uh, even if anyone had a bad reaction. So um, once it gets to the the, role, uh, the point of having an emergency use authorization, you're going to find that um, uh, they have already proven the safety uh, of that that um that vaccine. Uh, and they've also proven, um, well, I shouldn't say all the way proven, but they have a very good idea of the level of efficacy that can be expected with that vaccine. So when it comes to, let's say, you know, throughout the trials, uh, when does it ever get to a period where, because, you know, there were so many different clinical trials going on for, I mean, everyone wanted to try to figure out how to fix COVID or stop COVID from happening. And so many different, um, you know, th there was probably hundreds of different scientists out there trying to find a, a, a whatever they wanted to call it but when do they call it okay no too many people are having adverse reactions we need to stop this what what takes it to get to that point for for that to happen so i think it uh, it really depends on uh, on which phase of that trial where uh, uh, where uh, that many adverse events that you're talking about so i think uh, if it's very evident in phase 1 of the trial where you're only looking at about I would say 100 or so patients and uh, I would say like a majority. So anything more than 10 to 20 percent of them have some major side effects uh, and you would say minor side effects could include things like some just some muscle, uh, just some feeling tired or like small fever. So those would be minor side effects opposed to major side effects would be something affecting your organ systems. So if there's major side effects, then that definitely gives pause to the vaccine or any drug. Uh, whereas if there's minor side effects, then uh, then it's really dependent on the proportion and how minor it is. So every, uh, every trial that's designed gets to define by clinical severity what they would call as a major adverse event or a minor adverse event. So there's no particular, I would say, designated percentage to say that okay, if you hit this percent, then uh, then definitely no. But it really depends on the proportion of minor to major side effects that are there. Um, and that's the reason uh, for, especially in the COVID setting, where early on there were a lot of therapeutics or uh, really uh, uh, endeavors that had shown some promising effect uh, in even smaller number of patients where then the EUA, uh, sorry, uh, which was then led on to give to a larger group of people. But then as soon as you started accumulating more numbers, uh, when you started noticing some major events, where that's when uh, some of those things were disproved or said or stated that such, uh, such therapeutics should not be used. For example, early on, hydroxychloroquine was thought to be promising, but when they started using it more, uh, uh, there was clear evidence that uh, uh, that it may not uh, be that efficacious and it was causing more damage. So in which case the FDA uh, sort of comes out saying that, you know, we no longer would support the use of this drug under certain some of, some of these guidelines. So usually for when it's not in the setting of a pandemic, the, the, the bar is definitely much higher for any sort of approval for uh, therapeutics, uh, but if it is a 
um, very rapidly involving environment, uh, even not just for COVID, for even things like Ebola or other diseases where the mortality can be significantly high and it's spreading quite rapidly, then uh, sometimes they want to get the treatments out, even if they show some promise early to the public, just in case they, you may see some benefit, knowing that uh, some of these treatments may need to be pulled back or even diagnostic testing, for example, not just treatments. So the FDA does govern even testing for COVID, uh, not just uh, not just therapies for COVID. And I believe Sandra is going to join us now and she has a question. Sandra, you said in the back chat you had a question. <laughs> maybe maybe she's not ready again. Uh, but uh, Dr. Sneed. Sorry, oh. there, we, there Sorry. we go, Kev. Sorry about that. Um, just that audience question from April. Uh, good evening, everyone. April is asking why has Cinefarm not, um, is not in use in the U.S.? In many ways, uh, I, I, you know, that, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, you know, by and large, uh, many clinical trials are going to be according to either the relationship or access to a, a given population. So early on, uh, you know, we had um, uh, the Pfizer and BioNTech company come into the United States and, and establish it. When you, anytime you have a clinical trial, uh, it's a very, very complicated network of people in order to get enrollment at, at particular sites. And every site has to be able to show that they have the capacity and the expertise to be able to do the, the clinical trial in the proper way. One of the um, main things, uh, again, I'm going to point to my, my, my uh, former colleague, Nasneen. Um, one, of the, one of the main reasons that you have either Pfizer or, or a company like Moderna come into a, a Tampa General Hospital is because they have a, a staff of people like Nasneen and Ray and, and Dr. Vijay here uh, that are going to be uh, available to manage the clinical trial and collect the data in a very integrity-filled manner. So I'm not saying that Sinopharm is not, but but uh, the companies like Moderna, Pfizer, um, AstraZeneca tried to get uh, into the United States, and they made an error in some of their reporting early on, so the FDA did not approve them to move forward here in the United States. Uh, Novavax and, um, and Johnson & Johnson all of those were already here. And then you have to have an available number of people to actually pull off the clinical study. It's very difficult to enroll tens of thousands of people in a study at many different locations around the world and then collect all of that data in a uniform fashion that will then be evaluated in a proper, in a proper manner by the FDA or the governing body for that country. So uh, I, I, but one thing I can tell you, and I, I had a great deal of interest about Sinopharm from the very beginning, uh, because uh, uh, you know many of the Chinese um, uh, companies they 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 kind of filtered uh, quickly into uh, portions of Africa, and especially into South America, and we were wondering, you know, how well will their vaccine hold up when they get into those countries and. And then everybody publishes all of their data um, in, in journals like uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association or, or similar worldwide journals for public review. And that those are the studies that I read to try and make a determination of how well the study was done, 
and whether or not it's very efficacious or not. So I, I hope that gives a little bit of, of understanding of, of why it was not here in the United States. Uh, just uh, the ability for the other companies to kind of have established relationships already to be able to move into locations like here at Tampa General Hospital in USF uh, rather quickly with established teams that are very good and then do very credible research. Uh, those relationships had already been established and, and evaluated. Any additional follow-ups on that one, Sandra? Thank you very much. I think that's all we have. Uh, Damien is wondering if it has anything to do with the fact that it is actually made in China. Um, I don't know how political <laughs> these things can get, but um, I know, for example, recently here in the Cayman Islands, we understood that uh, Sinopharm had not actually sought any authorization from Public Health um, England. So that's one of the reasons that we can't get it because we have to go through that official channel. So if there's no authorization requested um, by the vaccine company in the UK, for example, then you know it might uh, actually slow down access in the Caribbean and other Commonwealth countries. Kevin, can I ask a question very quickly? Sure, go ahead. Um, and again, I'm 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 new to the Cayman Islands, so um, um, but if if the UK is involved, does that mean that um, AstraZeneca is not available in the Cayman Islands? So AstraZeneca is available. Um, okay. However, the UK government is really um, providing Pfizer. But some people, um, you know, started to ask the government, hey, we would like to have the benefit of having AstraZeneca. So they have actually um, got, uh, they've, they've made arrangements to ensure that they secure some. So some of those who would request it are able to get it. The issue is there's others now that are also trying to ask for the, um, is it, uh, am I saying it correctly? Is it Sinopharm or? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, so th th they're asking for, for that as well um, because some people may prefer a more traditional form of vaccine as well as some people are also saying it because they might be um, allergic to something that might be in the mRNA type of technology. So um, that, that's some of the discussions that's going on. And, and you know, what we want to do here on this show is to really, you know, reach out to people around the world to, to share that information with the public so people could ultimately make informed decisions. Yeah, and I mean, just to, um, sorry, doctor, just to further um, add to that, we actually have 400 doses of the AstraZeneca that are arriving on Saturday. And then the local health services authority, which is the government-ran um, hospital, will then uh, determine who will be offered that alternative one. But Pfizer is the one that we've had readily available. And just um, from that, I wanted to ask, I'm not sure who this question, you know, is best geared to, but I wanted to ask in terms of, uh, you know, one of the reasons why people have said they want the, the um, Sinopharm, they want these other options, is that uh, there's a belief that there's something wrong with the mRNA technology or the mRNA vaccines. In terms of side effects, um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is one of the side effects of um, the non-mRNA, so I guess that'd be Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, is a small percentage of individuals may actually um, acquire blood clots, which isn't something that they found with the mRNA technology. Are there other, if you can ver verify that for me, and then also are there other um, side effects that you see uh, from one vaccine type versus another vaccine type? 
Yeah, I, I can, I, again, I, I can chime in. I, I, I certainly invite my colleagues to, uh, to join in, in, in anything I say. Um, so with the what we found with, with AstraZeneca and with Johnson & Johnson, again, they use a technology called adenovector or adenovirus uh, as a vehicle. Um, in a very small, small, small number of people, uh, they were shown to activate a part of the clotting system uh, primarily and al almost ex exclusively in women. Um, uh, they were found to, to activate a part of the clotting system that, that resulted in some uh, fairly significant clots. Uh, and it's very similar to a condition that we find when some people get are given heparin, it activates a certain type of antibody that winds up leading to a particular type of clot. And that uh, uh, those two were shown to have uh, a very small uh, um, possibility of causing that type of clot. But let me make sure I'm very clear about the numbers. Here in the United States, uh, when they uh, when Dr. Vijay mentioned that they paused the Johnson & Johnson um, uh, clinical trial when uh, they had uh, approximately 17 women, 17, one seven, uh, that developed these clots, but they had given almost 8 million doses of Johnson & Johnson at the time that they paused it. And they wanted to pause to make sure they, they better evaluated why those clots were developing. And once they evaluated that, they determined that it was more efficacious and, and more beneficial to continue to give the, you know, the vaccine versus the very small number of people. And for AstraZeneca, uh, they had, at, at the time that they really began looking at it, they had about 30 people that developed a very similar type of clot. But by that point, they had given over 17 million doses of 17 million people that received it. So we're talking very, very, very small numbers. Um, I'll pause right there uh, just just to see if any of my colleagues want to, want to chime in. But uh, the, the messenger RNAs also had had a very small, small risk of a condition called myocarditis in men, primarily in younger men. But again, we're talking probably a grand total of about 400 people at a time that probably well over 25 million doses have been given. So these are really small numbers um, when you talk about these uh, potential side effects that were that were happening. They're extremely, extremely, extremely rare. Mm -hmm. And I just want to do a follow-up um, to that. And then we also have April with another question as well. So um, one of the, um, you know, sort of things that we're fighting here is we have a, a, again, it's probably a small number of individuals, but they're very vocal about having um, side effects that are extremely rare. And we have a population of about 70,000. Um, when you look at the numbers of what you have just indicated, like millions of people, and you might have 300 that have um, reported this particular side effect, what sort of, given our population size, what should we be seeing in terms of any severe side effects um, from the mRNA, in particular the Pfizer vaccine? Uh, because, for example, we have someone who claims that they have myocarditis. I don't think that medically it's been confirmed, but um, we have another person who says that, you know, um, their family member got the, uh, I think it's called Giron Barre. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, that particular uh, reaction because of the vaccine. Of course, people are linking um, timing uh, and cause causation, which we know that's not exactly how it works. 
But if we were just looking at the numbers, how realistic is it that a population of 70,000 persons would be, uh, you'd see these very rare um, things come up. Like everyone claims like, oh my gosh, tons of people are dying and they're all dying from blood clots. Um, again, what would you say to the people of the Cayman Islands who are trying to link causation, uh, you know, death of their loved ones with getting vaccinated? Uh, so I can jump in and say a couple of things in that regard, because this is a conversation that's not just unique to the Cayman Islands. I think it's unique to uh, even several parts of the United States, particularly in the state of Florida that we love. Um, and I think uh, if you go by just population, like Dr. Sneed had just mentioned, you're, you're talking about percentages that are less than 1% uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of potential side effect. Uh, on a huge population-based uh, analysis. So in reality, uh, that's the kind of uh, um, number of patients that you should be seeing uh, too in, uh, if, if, if it were um, uh, shared in, uh, in the Cayman Islands. Uh, at the same time, the, correlate, uh, the, the opposite side of the same coin is, is your protection that you get from the vaccine uh, and your chance of developing major side effects uh, if you were to get COVID. Uh -huh. uh, so uh, depending on where you live, um, uh, uh, the prevalence of community-based transmission uh, is pretty high. And, uh, and uh, the only way, just like every other uh, pandemic or epidemic we've all uh, fought through and sort of successfully overcome, where uh, you know we don't have people dying of uh, uh, measles all over the world that they did in uh, several years ago, or like you know almost 50, 60 years ago, and the reason for that is uh, developing that immune response or protective immunity. Uh, so does uh, does getting a vaccine and the primary role of these vaccines are to activate the body's immune system, and they do result in can result in certain side effects. But the the other side of it is that if you do get COVID, uh, which we have now seen very clearly that patients who are not vaccinated are the ones who are more susceptible to get severe forms of COVID. They can have not just uh, dying from COVID, but they can have serious long-term uh, side effects, uh, including long-term lung injury and kidney injury uh, that uh, is irre irreversible. And uh, I can tell you that uh, I'm a transplant surgeon, and uh, we actually are now uh, seeing long-term effects of COVID infection in liver patients, uh, causing liver failure. And uh, we've actually had to transplant some patients uh, uh, in a similar situation uh, across the U.S. So, uh, so, so yes, the vaccines are not side effect free, but COVID is worse. So okay. you really have to end up picking. Uh, you know, what is best for your community and what is best for your own health. Mm -hmm. Let me add on to that very quickly. I think, and this is imperative for the people from Cayman to hear this. Uh, there is nothing more dangerous than the little RNA strand that's sitting inside of the COVID virus. Okay. There's not one vaccine that has been approved for use, whether it be emergency use authorization, at the Sinopharm, Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, uh, or even Sinovac that's in, in um, South America, none of them 
are anywhere close to being more dangerous than the actual virus, as Dr. BJ just mentioned. Uh, that little strand, when it soaks into your body, the first thing it does is deactivate part of your uh, body's ability to even recognize you were infected. Wow. And, and many people around the world don't understand that. And so you have been infected and it's deactivating part of your body's what we call innate immune system from the very beginning while it's replicating in your body. And then it attaches, it's not really in my mind a, a respiratory virus, it's more of what we call a cardiovascular virus because it attaches on to a, a, a certain receptor that's part of your cardiovascular system. And so that can be your heart, your lungs, your gastrointestinal, your liver, your pancreas. Dr. Vijay, I think we're going to see a large number of diabetes a year or two down the road because it's been a, you know, the virus has been attacking the pancreas. And, 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 and we, know, we know these things are going to happen. So you need to get vaccinated to protect against that. You know, if you have a, a side effect for 48 hours, that is way better than having a lifetime of kidney damage where you have to go and see Dr. VJ, where he's going to re have to transplant your kidneys or your liver from the damage caused by the virus. Hmm. I'm glad that you um, that you shared that because I certainly had not um, heard it explained quite in that way. So thank you. Um, April does have another question. She says another concern I've had is that people say that the mRNA um, in quotations messes with your DNA. Can you explain this mRNA technology? I know people think that it's relatively new. You know, I've read personally that it's been around for some 50 years and at least the the beginnings of it. And there's been a lot of um, you know, um, research that's gone into mRNA, but what would you say to that question about it messing with your DNA and how do we alleviate the fears that come, um, when you talk, talk about the mRNA technology? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, th this is kind of, um, uh, because of my pharmacy background, this is kind of where I'm, I'm an expert on, uh, let, let me, uh, as I've talked to the public and, and I do a lot of these kind of shows, I just want to uh, just make sure that we understand something. mRNA is in everybody's body right now. It's how you're, it's, it's, it's just a code that tells your body how to print certain proteins in your body. So the example I give, if you're on a computer and you type the word, we'll just say type the word COVID and you hit the print button, your computer sends a code to the printer that tells it to print a piece of paper with the word COVID on it. And the moment it prints out, the code is done. Messenger RNA does nothing more than tell a little printer in your cells called a ribosome to print a certain kind of protein that results in your body building up very good, robust antibodies against the particular coronavirus. It does not, it never encounters your DNA. It's not programmed to encounter your DNA. It has no capability of encountering your DNA. It will not encounter your DNA in your reproductive organs or anywhere else in your body. And so we have to be very clear about that. Messenger RNA is, is what tells your body. All of us have messenger RNA in our body. And by the way, when you get injected with an mRNA vaccine, within uh, beginning 12 hours later, your body is already breaking it down and getting rid of it. And by 24 hours, it's all the way gone out of your body. Your body has broken it down. So I hear that a lot. Um, but messenger RNA has nothing at all to do with your DNA. It's an impossibility. Mm -hmm. We do have another question that has come through on uh, the WhatsApp messenger. 
Um, this individual has inquired. They said, good evening. Thanks for these sessions. Can you please doc ask Dr. Sneed to speak on Novavax and its current status? And how soon does he suspect um, before it will be ready for use? I know they were asking for me, Nazneen. I want to make sure we, we get you involved. Is there anything you'd like to share? Uh, I, I can share a little bit of the, the science around around uh, Novavax if you want. I, mean, I, I just want to make sure we, we keep you engaged because I'm so happy to see you, my friend. I, oh, it's so nice know, to see you, too. It's been such a long time since we've had a chance to have these kind of conversations. Yes, no, it has. No, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about the Cayman Islands. Um, uh, but here in the United States, the I would almost anticipate that probably sometime late in the fourth quarter that Novavax uh, will will hopefully get their EUA approval. It's what we call a it's a it's a protein based uh, vaccine, and it's very novel how they did it. They they have programmed it uh, to get the spike proteins that you, the little red spiky things on the outside uh, to to grow in a, in a certain type of almost like a I'm just going to say a broth right now because if I told you. Uh, it's very technical how they really do it, but they get it to grow and then they take that and that's what they inject in your arm. So it's very similar to the Sinopharm vaccine that you have that is available right now, uh, but it's not inactivated, but it's how they grew the little spike proteins. So, and I'm in, I am anticipating it's going to be um, uh, approved here in the United States on, uh, late in the fourth quarter. Uh, I think it's a very effect, effective vaccine. Uh, it was shown to be anywhere, depending on where you were, anywhere from 91 to 94, and even uh, even higher than that, effective uh, as a as a vaccine overall. And it offers a different alternative, and just in terms of um, you know, how it works in the body and the base of, of how it was manufactured. Yeah, well, one of the things I want to also, I guess, also highlight would be that a lot of these other vaccines that are kind of starting to show some data and um, be used and studied and, and administered throughout the world, um, a lot of their information's not yet in. However, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, it's already here. The pandemic, if we didn't have those vaccines that were or, or that are currently available, um, we'd be in some serious trouble. I think 100%, Kevin, like you said, I think we'd be in serious trouble uh, if the vaccines were not available. And I think um, it's just like Sinopharm or, uh, you know, there's kudos to several countries who tried to lead the effort into developing um, uh, some vaccines. And I think uh, more importantly, also uh, make it available uh, to several other countries uh, that uh, either don't have the resources to make the vaccine themselves or uh, uh, the cost is too prohibitive for them to import such vaccines that there's a huge worldwide campaign on trying to make sure that uh, the vaccines are uh, freely and easily available um, in order to really uh, try and get ahead of this disease that's uh, affecting the entire world. So uh, I think there's a really good vaccine collaborative uh, that's been trying to uh, push out vaccines to several smaller nations or impoverished nations uh, in particular uh, to to help us fight this. And uh, hopefully that's what's going to help us preventing new variants and uh, and just be safe and 
be able to live life as it was before 2019 or 2020, I guess. <laughs> All right. We've got a few questions. Um, Denny has a, a comment, um, says Kevin Watler, the Cayman Islands is not legally obligated to only receive vaccines that are approved in the UK. Um, Carol says, excellent explanations, re-mRNA. Can we hand that out to everyone? <laughs> uh, Damien has a question. So his question says, so mRNA compared to a protein-based subunit vaccine is one better than the other? Yeah, you know, that's, I, get, I get that question very often and I'm going to be very careful. I think it would be irresponsible for me to start talking about one being better than another. Uh, one of the, the clear advantages of, 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 and this applies also to Novavax, uh, but particular uh, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, and Pfizer. Uh, one of the clear advantages that they have is that we, you, can, you can reprogram the vaccine very quickly once you get a particular, uh, once we know the, the particular, what we call um, a genetic sequence of the virus that we're trying to fight against. So in the future, if, if we get enough mutation, so for, and, I'm, and I mean a real, not, not a variant, but a real mutation. Uh, so the, the SARS-CoV-2 is way different than the SARS-CoV-1 that we had back in 2002. Now that we have the genetic sequence of the SARS-CoV-2, we can reprogram the vaccines with the mRNAs very quickly to match up almost 100% to the uh, to the vac to the virus that we're trying to fight against, and so the mRNA vaccine, uh, the, the real real utility of the mRNA vaccines is the ability to adjust uh, in a very short amount of time to the genetic pattern of the of the most dangerous version of the of the um, of the um, virus, and so you can't. It's very difficult to do that with uh, with uh, inactivated vaccines because you have to grow the, that particular virus. And then you have to go through a very complicated process to deactivate it before you put it into a vaccine to inject into the arms of other people. With mRNA and with the adenovector, again, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, um, we, can, we can just reprogram the vaccine very quickly because they're synthetically based in how we put the, the vaccines together. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Um, Diamond Princess Sapphire says, great information. Uh, April says that this is a great show. She's been learning lots. And Gabriella says, I agree. Kevin? You know, I have one, I have one quick comment because here in Florida, we've had about 50,000 people. Uh, we've had over 50,000 people die from COVID in our state. Now, we are a state of, of 22 million people. But for our all of our brothers and sisters in the Cayman Islands, I just want you all to think about the fact that the number, you know, I, I did not know the population. If you say there's 70,000 people that we're really targeting uh, for safety against COVID in the Cayman Islands, uh, vaccination offers the best uh, way to protect your culture your, your and your society and the people that you love. Um, and because of Dr. VJ said, uh, the current percentages of, that you find when you're concerned about side effects are very, very, very small. But COVID, if it ran rampant in the Cayman Islands, would really cause a great amount of harm. And so I just wanted to kind of, when I heard the number 70,000, I thought, well, gosh, in Florida, we've already had 50,000 people die in this state alone. And in two days from now, we're going to cross the 700,000 death barrier here in the United States. 
And I don't want that to happen to the, to, uh, the friendly people from the Cayman Islands. We love the Cayman Islands, but we want you all to be safe. So uh, Dr. Vijay, thank you for triggering that, that uh, inspirational message from me to share with all of our people in the Cayman Islands. Mm -hmm. And uh, from our other guests, um, what uh, words of advice have you had some as well that you would give to the people here in the Cayman Islands? That's neat. We'll throw that to you, Doctor Ray. Actually, his phone died. That's why you might have seen him pop off the screen. By the way, he his phone froze and died, and so he might get back on right before we wrap up, which will be in just a minute. But um, Nazneen. Yeah, I well, I just want to reiterate, you know, again, from a public health perspective, um, the best way, again, as my colleagues mentioned, is to protect yourself is by getting vaccinated and protecting your loved ones. And, you know, so do it for yourself, but also do it for your family, do it for your community. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the only way, right? And so, and we just want to preserve our quality of life. Um, you know, being in a, when you see in a clinical setting, what can happen, um, it's, it's very, it's very disturbing. And um, we certainly don't want anyone to be in that position. So that would be my my words of wisdom. Uh, I would hundred percent echo that. Uh, I think seventy thousand is is literally a small family uh, of folks, and uh, uh, get vaccinated, be safe and protected. Because even if a small percentage of you were to get ill, uh, then I I can't imagine uh, how the health system is going to handle that and that's ultimately going to affect care that someone else in a real medical emergency uh, may or may not be able to get. So, you know, go get vaccinated. If people are not vaccinated or have their con have concerns about them, then use that opportunity to, to discuss about what the concerns are uh, and have a very open dialogue. I think uh, that's, that's what's going to ultimately help us uh, get ahead of it and break any myths. And uh, yeah, mm -hmm. that's about it. Well, thank you all so much for that. And just one final question. Um, when people say, because we kind of hear this from people who are kind of in that anti-vaxxer zone, when they say, you know, it's a personal choice and it doesn't impact anyone else. And, you know, because even vaccinated people can still get um, COVID-19. How do you respond to that mentality that number one, you can still get it even if you're vaccinated and number two, how does their personal vaccination uh, status impact anyone else? Well, the first thing I want to make sure that everybody knows, um, once you get vaccinated, the, the, the true utility of getting vaccinated is you have circulating antibodies that are ready to protect you uh, from the virus. Now, as I've already mentioned, many people are not aware, aware around the world when you come into contact with the virus, the first thing it tries to do is deactivate part of your natural immunity. That's the very first thing it's going to do. And so um, after that, if you have, if you are, if you've already been vaccinated, you already have an antibody army waiting to neutralize the rest of it when it tries to get into your body to replicate. So even if you get what we call a breakthrough infection, it's probably going to turn it into a very, very, very mild cold. Okay. Many people wind up getting a little bit of a sniffle, maybe a little bit of a headache. If it goes anything beyond that, it's, it's a very mild flu. But what we're not getting is hospitalization, organ damage, and potentially even death. 
That's number one. And then number two, if you can, um, do you all do you all have uh, red lights uh, when you drive down the road in the Cayman mm -hmm. Islands? Sure. Stop signs. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the reason I bring that up, uh, if you have red lights and stop signs in your society, then you have already bought into the fact that you're going to have rules that govern how you are going to protect each other in society that are already bigger than you as an individual. You've already bought into it. So when people are saying it's my individual right to not get vaccinated, that's like saying, I don't feel like waiting for a red light. I'm just going to drive through the red light because I feel like it. Well, we know if you drive through a red light or a stop sign, you might hurt yourself or you might hurt somebody else or you may kill somebody. And so we want we have we have things that are designed to protect society and civilization. And, and, and when you get vaccinated, you are contributing to protecting your loved ones and your your fellow countrymen around you. And if you don't get vaccinated and, and here in the United States, I don't know the rules in the Cayman Islands. I say, you know, uh, not being unvaccinated is like a, a person sitting at home drinking uh, a large amount of alcohol and smoking cigarettes in their house. Well, you can do whatever you want in your house. But then we don't want you getting in your car and driving down the road, nor do we want you in a restaurant smoking cigarettes next to me. Your habits are now going to harm other people around you. And so for, you know, I, I just I feel strongly that, you know, that I agree with you. It's your individual right to not get vaccinated. I agree. But then you also need to remove yourself from the safety of, of civilization and society around you. It's no different than running through a red light or a stop sign or driving while drunk or smoking mm -hmm. in public where you're harming other people. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Nice and, That's uh, our public health message, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Your I PIO trained you well. Um, I, see, I see Ray has, has joined us back. Um, Ray, thank Sorry, you so much for Sorry, coming guys. back. That's okay. Um, Damien is asking, does anyone have any knowledge of the um, Cuban vaccine that's in use there that they're now administering to two-year-olds and up? Well, I'm Cuban. Um, <clears throat> so basically what they are doing is they are trying to, so they have like a th two or three. They have, I think the one is Ab Ab uh, Abdallah, the other one it is like a... Uh, is a soberana, something like that. So basically, they are trying to do that. Uh, it is hard, honestly, because uh, statistics in Cuba is super, super. It's not like here in US, so you don't have one hundred percent, you know, the data available to see. So I don't know how they are doing that. Honestly, I left my country like eleven years ago, so that's why I don't, you know. But all my friends, they are doctors. And every time when I'm asking those questions, they say, Ray, we don't have data, so we cannot see that. Mm -hmm. So the it's very, very specific for only some specific doctors or your institutions. So I cannot tell you anything about those. Mm -hmm. I know that I have a father with their friends and they are getting the vaccine. I don't know even what the criteria, the one that they are using right now. Mm -hmm. So very limited information coming out of Cuba on those in terms of efficacy and safety and, and other things. So Denny is saying that Public Health England is reporting death amongst fully vaccinated people. So again, people who, you know, 
they kind of don't want to call themselves anti-vaxxers anymore because I guess that's not a, a good term, but they're, they're saying they're pro-choice. They want to be able to choose not to get vaccinated, which is semantics. But um, one of the things that they point to is, well, you know, people are still dying who are fully vaccinated. What are the numbers that we're talking about here of people who are dying who are, you know, double vaccinated, who with both doses, for example? Well, I'm, I'm, and I want Dr. Vijay to follow right behind me because I know his numbers are going, or, or his knowledge about this is, I'm sure, it's superior to mine. But one thing when I hear that here in the United States, one of my first questions are, well, what what other medical conditions that they have to begin with? That's number one, because we know for a fact that people who are diabetic, people that have high blood pressure, uh, people that fall into uh, an, an obese category, uh, they are at significant risk even if they've been uh, double vaccinated and even at the timing of their vaccine. So if they were vaccinated six or eight months ago and they're having a waning effect of, of, the, um, of their antibodies and probably were in need of a booster, uh, then these are people that typically succumb to, uh, to uh, either uh, very severe illness, hospitalization, and then even death. But that number is a real, it's not, that's gonna be uh, well less than, than 5% of the people that actually die. Uh, I mean, I'm talking probably approaching on only two or 3% because there's a number of people, uh, we hear it here in our state, about 92% of people who wind up in the hospital or die are, are, are unvaccinated. And so everybody else in that 8% are people who fall into these other medical categories or the elderly. And then you have a really small, small number of people and it's just unfortunate and, and um, you know, nature just took over and it was their time not to be here. Uh, Dr. Vijay, is there, uh, you may have more specific numbers because you were actually there at Tampa General uh, and I saw the numbers, but I, I would love for you to be able to share that with our audience tonight. Or Ray, yeah, Dr. Ray. You're, you're 100% right, um, right uh, Dr. Sneed. Um, uh, the deaths among what we call COVID vaccine breakthrough deaths percentage is uh, in the less than 2% range uh, uh, across the nation. Um, there's some states that are a little higher in percentage, uh, which we're not really sure, but uh, for the most part, it's less than 2%. Uh, but that does account for uh, even that 2% when we say breakthrough vaccination accounts for a fair amount of uh, at-risk or uh, population, which, um, for example, the biggest in that group is uh, transplant patients. Uh, these are patients who take immune suppression medicines or cancer patients whose body's innate uh, sort of immune response is weak. Um, and these patients, uh, we've actually seen now that despite getting sort of two doses of the vaccine, uh, may not, in fact, be able to generate sufficient antibody or sufficient immune response, partly because we've been giving them medication to suppress that immune response. So those patients are more vulnerable and the death rate or the severe COVID rate in that population is far higher when they get COVID, close to 20-30% almost. So, um, uh, so which is actually another reason why uh, if you've seen more recent news that we've now actually approved booster doses or the third dose for some of these highly selected individuals, 
uh, that uh, we are seeing a much higher rate of breakthrough infections uh, with the hope that a booster dose would uh, help us in protecting immunity. Now, the concept of getting a booster dose is not new at all. Um, the commonest thing is things like tetanus, um, where people are known to get boosters every 10 years uh, just because at some points your body's ability or defense mechanisms do wane over time. So overall, the, uh, can patients die from COVID after vaccination? Certainly, yes. But again, that percentage is less than 2% of the, all the people who get vaccinated and get COVID. Um, so again, that itself, uh, that is 2% of people who get COVID after the vaccine. And we're already talking about 90 plus percent of patients who even don't even get COVID, uh, because their bodies, uh, like Dr. Sneed mentioned, they already have an army of antibodies waiting for them to defend against the virus. Mm -hmm. So another reason for a big community for everyone to get vaccinated is, there are certain, certainly a group of individuals who are at much higher risk of uh, contracting severe COVID, even if they are vaccinated. So your best form of protection is to make sure that you don't give them the virus. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another important reason that if you have, uh, you know, a 70 year old grandma at home, or if you have someone who's received an organ transplant, or if you have someone who's fought an enormous battle with breast cancer and uh, are on chemotherapy for that, then even if they've gotten the vaccine, you may still be able to give them COVID uh, by just exposing them through you, through you. And even though you may survive through COVID, being young and healthy, they may not. So that's why it's all the more important, just like Dr. Sneed mentioned, don't cross the red light. You wear seat belts in a car, not just to protect yourself, to protect everyone else too. So mm -hmm. same reason is uh, it's really important to get out there, get the vaccine. So you're able to protect people who are not able to get the vaccine or who are not able to get the same level of protection from the vaccine that you are. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. And Dr. Ray, just as we wrap up here, we'd ask um, all of our other guests tonight for some you know, final words of wisdom for the people here in the Cayman Islands. I'm wondering if you had any, uh, we have a population of about 70,000 people. Um, what would you say to the listeners? You know, I would say that uh, please uh, follow your authority recommendations. I know that there are a lot of discrepancy outside. Uh, we have right now in this world uh, two groups, people supporting the vaccine and supporting the, you know, the wearing masks and some people that are there not supporting that. I think that here we need to use common sense. So the only thing that we have so far is to protect ourselves and our family, friends and patients is, is doing this. I know that it's not easy, but at the same time, I do prefer to wear this for, for centuries instead of to lose one life. It is so sad. It is so sad. It is so hard to be here losing patients because we don't want people, they don't want to wear a mask or they don't want to use what we have. So we are working so hard to get vaccines, to get medication, but it takes time. I'm sorry, but I honestly take time. We want to do everything in one day, but it's a process and takes time. We are working so hard and we're doing our best to, to develop something to save more life. But please, we need everybody uh support and we need to work together to to save more life instead of to see 
you know, more people dying every single day. Right now we are affecting children too, and I, it is so sad. So please take those words in consideration. Think twice. That is not funny. This is not a game. And also think about it, what is the pandemic means. So it is so hard. It's so serious. So please, please take this in consideration. This is very, very serious. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Well, uh, well, just again, want to thank every one of you all for for joining, um, you know, our conversation this evening, and um, you know, taking the time again out of your busy day to to be able to address the Cayman Islands audience, bring in some of what we um, are going through here in, in the United States, and and sharing some of your expertise. I mean, um, it's just very, very valuable, and um, definitely thank you, thank you, thank you. I know they thank you in the Cayman Islands as well. Just want to kind of highlight um, some of the upcoming shows that we are going to be having um, over the next few weeks, every Tuesday and Thursday night, again, right at 7 o'clock Cayman time. We will definitely uh, continue these types of discussions. So after um, the next one, I should say, it's going to be um, COVID-19 and children. So that's one that we want every parent in the Cayman Islands to come and join. Um, That's October the 15th, next Tuesday, we got um, Dr. Claudia Espinosa that's going to be on and she's going to have all of your questions answered if you uh, join that discussion live. So be sure to tune into that one and set aside some time to be able to watch that. And then next Thursday, we're going to uh, speak with Dr. Uh, Paul Klotman, who's going to talk about the history and effectiveness of COVID vaccines as well. So we're going to kind of touch a little bit more on the historical part of the vaccine conversation. We did some of that on this show, but we're going to have another doctor. Again, we don't want the same faces all the time. We want to kind of mix it up so everyone could know this is the information that's out there. And then on Tuesday the 12th, we are going to be talking to a virologist, um, Dr. Thomas Unitz. He's going to be on and, again, get in some more of the discussion. And um, we're going to just keep on going through a lot of different topics that we have coming up. Um, we're also going to be um, we're finalizing the dates now with the Health Services Authority to, to let our public health authorities uh, come on the show and talk about how ready is the Cayman Islands medical system once this bubble goes away, once the borders reopen, you know, how prepared are they to, again, be able to treat um, the, the cases that will inevitably happen. So, again, we have a lot of different shows coming up. Come on and, and join us every Tuesday and Thursday night if you're unable to. Again, you could always watch it on Facebook and on YouTube. So, again, Sandra, I'll, I'll leave you to close off the show there. And uh, thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Thank you so much. Yes, a special thanks to um, our guests. We've got Dr. Kevin uh, Sneed, Dr. Vijay, uh, and Dr. Ray, and Nazneen. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this evening. And do have a wonderful um, evening, folks. All right. And to our regular audience members, I just wanted to remind you that tomorrow's program, um, we have some special guests in the business community. Thank you so much, Damien, that will be joining us. And just an FYI, um, at 9.30, so in about an hour's time, we've got a special premiere video from none other than the Honorable uh, Minister of Tourism and Transport, Mr. Kenneth Bryan. <clears throat> so you will be seeing that that video premiered here first before anybody else has it. So please make sure that you tune in for that. And that goes live um, at 9.30 as a premiere video. So uh, go get yourself a snack. I'm going to go have some dinner and put my little one to bed. And I'll be back at 9.30 to watch that. So again, folks, this series, big shout out to Kevin uh, Wattler. 
there in Lakeland, Florida. Kevin has been spending a lot of his valuable time putting this series together for the benefit of the people here in the Cayman Islands. It is a lot of wonderful information, I must tell you. Um, it's informative. It's interesting for me. I'm learning lots. <clears throat> Some things I knew, some things I didn't know. And I think that's what this is all about. It's an opportunity for us to learn and engage uh, with the professionals and with experts um, instead of just, you know, talking around this topic and getting misinformation. You can't make a proper decision uh, with misinformation. So listen to the experts. They have spent their entire careers, countless years, uh, getting to where they are in their fields. And there's a reason why um, they are then termed an expert. So, you know, I take my hats off to them. I take my hats off to uh, Kevin Watler, who, like I said, has really done a phenomenal job uh, getting these guests on board. I can't wait until we have the virologist coming up. We will have some um, local individuals as well, because we need to pull this back into the Cayman context. So, for example, um, you know, uh, are we prepared? That's the biggest question in everybody's mind. How prepared are we? And we're going to get some of those answered with some details. We're going to dig deep on those particular days as well. So thank you, Wee Wee. Um, Soka, nope, it's 7 p.m. came on time, but you can always go back and watch it. Thank you, Denny, uh, Damien, Gabby, uh, Miss April, Diamond, uh, who else was here? Carol, Mitzi, Tracy. We had quite a few other people um, on YouTube also watching. I know there's a couple competing events that were on tonight, but nonetheless, uh, share this video with your friends, YouTube, Facebook, and encourage them to all become educated. Have a wonderful evening, folks, and we'll see you um, at 9.30 for the premiere with Mr. Brian, and then at 7.30 in the morning.